Amen. How firm a foundation, the hymn says. Let's turn in our Bibles where we find that firm foundation, the Word of God, that which is the stone upon which our faith is built. And we turn to Psalm 1. We live in a perilous day in our nation. We're facing a danger as serious as any we've ever faced in our 200-plus years of history. The abuse of drugs. Our president this last week called us to fight a national war against this evil scourge destroying the very fabric of American society. And I'm convinced that we as Christians ought to do our part in this. Abortion is perhaps the most emotional battle, but drug abuse is the most pervasive battle that we face. The real answer to the problem of drug abuse eludes most of our leaders. The theme that we keep hearing is that of more money. Money for education, money for law enforcement, money for new prisons, money for military assistance to various foreign governments. I'm not saying that these things are bad. In fact, these things may be very well necessary. But one university professor this past week interviewed on television recently uh, got nearer the point than many of our leaders. He said drug abuse is a sociological problem. And only a change in societal attitudes about drugs will solve it. The point is that we can stop the flow of cocaine from Latin America, but unless the attitude about drug abuse, even the casual use of it, changes, other drugs will be found and substituted. Already, as you know, alcohol is the most abused substance in our society. But the professor though he went further than some, in my opinion, didn't yet go far enough. For the sociological problem that we face has a spiritual root. Many people in our technological, materialistic, self-indulgent, and depersonalized society are very unhappy with life. Drug abuse is an attempt on their part to find happiness a feeling of elation and escape from their personal misery, disillusionment, emptiness, and guilt. I believe that until and unless this nation acknowledges this spiritual root and then turns to seek the truth of God, it is destined for the dung heap of ruin where lie the wrecks of all of those nations that have forgotten God. The Bible says the wicked will be turned into hell and all of those nations that forget God. The psalm that is before us today talks about how to be a truly happy person. One does not have to turn to a substance like a drug to be a happy person. In fact, to be a truly happy person, one must come to the Word of God. The psalm begins with that wonderful word, blessed. How blessed is the man. The word was emphasized for us again in the worship choir uh, as it sang this morning. 
The word in the Hebrew here is in the plural, and the idea is, oh, how very happy is the man. When the Hebrew puts something in plural like this, he is intending to multiply the effect of the word. He says, how very happy to this extreme is this man. Leupold defines blessedness as that full measure of happy circumstances that one can experience in life. The point that I see in our study of God's Word today is this, that to be the blessed man, the blessed person, one must come into a right relationship with the eternal God. The study of these six verses will contrast one who does have that relationship with one who does not. In verses 1 to 3, we see the blessed man. It is not surprising to see the blessed man in a portrait painted with negative strokes on this canvas of Revelation. You see, sin abounds around us, and to be godly means taking a position against sin and against evil. It means not conforming to the pressures of evil which surround us. The life of the blessed man, therefore, is described first in negative terms. Notice that this life of the blessed man is, first of all, a life of separation. And then it is a life of devotion. And finally, a life of satisfaction. Think with me first about this matter of separation. For this psalm tells us what the blessed man does not do. In the first place, he does not listen to the wicked. That is, he does not listen to the wicked so as to share the wicked's opinion, so as to shape his own conduct according to the principles of the wicked. By the way, the word wicked here in its root is the idea of being loosed from something. Something that is abnormal because it has lost its rightful place. It has gotten loose. And so the picture of the sinner here is that of one who has gotten loose, as it were, from God. The blessed man does not listen to those who are loose from God. He does not shape his conduct, his lifestyle according to the dictates of those who have no relationship with God. That's what he does not do. It's a life of separation in lifestyle. Secondly, he does not live like the sinners. That is, his manner of life does not follow after those who have missed the mark, which is the idea behind the word sinners in verse 1. He does not commit himself to the way that characterizes those who live for sinful pursuits. There's a difference in the daily activity of the blessed man and the sinner. He does not follow along with them. He does not stand with them in their path. And that brings us to the third description of the life of separation. The blessed man does not link himself with the scoffers. That is, he does not sit in the seat of the scoffers. The idea there is to sit down with them and to partake with them. 
He does not associate in agreement with their mocking. He does not forge alliances with the wicked. The blessed man does not do these things. The word scoffers here refers to those who have rejected God. Those who have rejected God's revelation. And who then strengthen themselves in that position of mocking by their ridicule of God and his word. And then also by seeking the support of others who agree with them and who will sit down with them. Those are the scoffers. Scoffers then protect their accepted line, their mocking, their scoffing. And they protect that accepted line with a fierce jealousy. For example, ask those people in the scientific community who believe in creationism. What they believe is not the accepted line of the mockers. And if they stand up for what they believe, they become the objects of ridicule because they do not conform to the accepted line. They will not sit down with the scoffers. Ask those who speak of abstinence as the best answer to the AIDS epidemic or, for that matter, to the abortion crisis. And such people are called homophiles. They are called out of touch. I should have said homophobic. They are out of touch. They are opposed to civil rights because they do not accept the line of the mockers, which is that uh, abstinence is for another day. That's not even realistic in our culture. My point is this, that there are those who mock God and his word. The blessed man does not sit down with them. He does not associate with them in their mocking. It does not mean that he cannot befriend them. It does not mean that he cannot reach out to them in the love of Christ. But he cannot identify with them. He cannot forge an alliance or a partnership with them. And so the blessed man in the first place is described with these negative strokes of the pen of the writer. He says that the blessed man lives a life of separation. He must be careful whose counsel he listens to. There are people who have made tragic mistakes in their marriages because they have listened to bad counsel. They've gone to other people who have had the same problems they've had and haven't licked them, and they've taken their advice. They've gone to counselors who do not know God, who do not honor His Word, and they've taken that counsel. They have listened to people who do not trust the Lord, and the result of that is that the council has led them astray. They have walked in that council and are no longer the blessed one. The blessed one must be careful of the council that he listens to. The blessed one must be careful of the lifestyle that he practices. He cannot allow his conduct of life to be shaped by the ungodly system around him. There will always be a certain tension in the life of the Blessed One because he lives in a world that's moving in another direction, that has different standards, that thinks a different way. He will not fit in with the crowd. He will not. 
And then the blessed one must also be careful of the associations that he makes. While certainly opening his heart to those who are lost and pitying them and reaching out to them in the love of Christ, he must be careful that those concerns of his do not forge alliances on behalf of the wicked ones. The blessed man is described in terms of a life of separation, what he does not do. And you notice the progression. There's the walking, and then the standing, and finally the sitting. An increasing relationship that the, the blessed man must avoid. When men live in sin, they go from bad to worse, said Spurgeon. And that's what the psalmist here is suggesting by the progression. First walking, then standing, and finally sitting, actually, and partaking with the wicked. The blessed one lives a life of separation. Oh, for the grace of God in our lives, folks, that we might live this kind of a life and experience the blessedness that comes to such a one. Oh, that we might know the grace of God to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. That we might be willing to go outside the camp bearing the reproach of Jesus Christ. And then the life of the Blessed One is described, secondly, as a life of devotion. The psalmist expresses what he does. In the first place, he delights in the law of God. He finds that revelation that God has given to us to be joyous and not burdensome. He finds the Bible to be a treasure to him, which is the thought behind delighting. He considers it something precious. And because he delights in the law of God, he does something more. He meditates in the law of God day and night. The word meditate is an interesting one. It, it has the idea behind it of moaning, actually. The idea of uttering under one's breath. The picture is of a person reading to himself and rereading and rereading and rereading. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And each time as he reads it and utters it, the Word of God goes a bit deeper into his mind and into his heart until it comes to that point of making a change. For change also is a part of the word meditation. The Blessed One delights in the law of God, and because of that delight, he meditates in the law of God. And he allows it to trickle down into his innermost being until it strikes the place where changes are made. And his life is transformed because of it. There are practical results through the application of that which he reads and rereads and rereads. You know, when you and I do that, the practical impact of it is that it's hidden in our subconscious. So that when we are not even consciously thinking about the Word of God, the Word of God is nonetheless present. And at any moment, the Spirit of God may cause something that is hidden within to erupt into our conscious. And then we are reminded and we deal with it and we apply it. That's the point of meditation. 
the blessed man does not do some things, but there are some things that he does do. And one of those is that he meditates in the Word of God. He is devoted to the Word of God. The blessed man lives a life of devotion to God and his Word. And in the third place, the life of the blessed man can be described as a life of satisfaction. There are some things he does not do, there are some things he does, and now we notice what he becomes. We notice in verse 3, in the first place, a figure. A figure that is used to describe the blessed man. A figure that is common to Scripture. It is that of a tree. He will be like a tree, says the writer. In the first place, a tree that is planted. Not a wild tree that has grown up by itself, that has just taken root by chance, but a tree that is planted by God. That's what a blessed one is like. He is a tree that is planted, and because it is planted and cultivated, it is a tree that is nourished at its roots, for it is planted by streams of water. The one who is blessed has his roots going into the rivers of grace. His roots take part of the communion with Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, he is nourished in his life. He is a tree planted, a tree nourished, and a tree fruitful. For appropriate fruit is produced in his life. In fact, in every season, it yields its fruit in its season. Have you noticed that life has its seasons? Different kinds of seasons. Seasons of youth, seasons of middle age, and seasons of old age. It has seasons of joy and seasons of sorrow, seasons of success and seasons of failure. The one who is the blessed man brings forth fruit in its season. Whatever season we are passing through at the moment in our lives, there is fruit there that honors God because we are a tree planted and nourished by the rivers of God's grace. And therefore fruit comes. And then it's a tree that is healthy. Its leaf does not wither. It does not shrivel. It does not turn brown and drop off. There is no shriveling of the soul of the one who is the blessed man, who lives the life of separation and the life of devotion. For if he does those two things, he also has a life of satisfaction. What a wonderful figure that is. Could you describe your life as a tree today? Are you a tree that is planted and nourished and fruitful and healthy? That's the blessed man, and every one of us can be that blessed person. And then there's a principle I notice also in verse 3. In whatever he does, he prospers. That is, insofar as he devotes himself to God and to the Word, he prospers. Now please understand, this is not a proof text for prosperity theology that is proclaimed by some people today. This is not a verse that can be applied to say that God is always going to make us prosperous in whatever we do. 
we'll be healthy and wealthy and so on. Whatever he does, he prospers, says the psalmist. What does that mean? That means that as we devote ourselves to the Word of God, as we're meditating in it, as we live our lives, whatever we experience in life, in that we will find a certain prospering. I think that this is a, an Old Testament setting of Romans 8.28, actually. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. And whatever He does, He prospers. You say, well, I'm not prospering today. I'm, I'm devoted to the Word. I'm living the life of separation. But somehow, I'm going through burdens and battles. Well, that's part of life, isn't it? Even for the blessed one. The point is, as you go through those burdens and through those battles, there will be a prospering of your soul. There will be profit for you. You will find some nugget of gold there that God places in your soul. You will prosper in it as the blessed one. There will be fruit that you will enjoy because of the root that goes down deep into God. The blessed one will live a life of satisfaction. But then we come to the last part of this psalm, verses 4 through 6, in which we find words describing the wicked one. The psalmist turns suddenly on his heels, and he says, Not so the wicked. Not so the wicked. A, a brief statement in which he turns the whole theme that he's covering. The brevity of this phrase introduces the unfortunate circumstances, the unhappy situation of those who are ungodly. The point is that there is not much to be said about the life of one who is ungodly. The wicked, not so. Notice that the wicked are compared to chaff. If you're raised on a farm, you know what chaff is. It is the husk of the grain. It is absolutely worthless. It has no value to it. It can't be used for anything. In fact, it is so useless, it's discarded through a process of threshing or winnowing, as they did in the day of the psalmist. They would often have a platform, perhaps on ground level or above ground level, where it might catch the wind somewhat better. They would place their grain harvested upon that platform. And then through some process, they would begin the winnowing of it, throwing it into the air, perhaps with a fork of some sort, or a, a shovel, or a net. They began throwing it into the air, and as the grain went into the air, the husks would fall away, and the wind would carry the husks away from the grain so that the pure grain was left and the husk was discarded. That's the picture in the psalmist's mind. He says, They are like chaff which the wind drives away. So are those who are without a relationship with God. Those who persist in sin. They are like chaff that has no real use in life. And though they may live a life that is valuable to society... 
it is not valuable to God. Though they themselves are valuable to him, their life produces nothing of value because they have no relationship with God. And in the end, they will be like chaff, discarded. They're compared to chaff, and they're certain for judgment, says the psalmist. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. He seems to talk here about two different kinds of sinners. Those who are openly wicked. The wicked will not stand, he says, in the judgment. To not stand in judgment means to not to be able to stand one's ground when judgment comes. It means to have to be ashamed at the time of judgment so as to retire or to sit down. It means to stand before the judge and to have no defense. A gentleman I know here in the Twin Cities is right now going through a time uh, before a judge in another state accused of a crime which he says he did not commit in fact of which there is no proof but nonetheless he is there with some others he is able to go before the judge with a different attitude than the others because he knows there is no proof he did not commit the crime therefore he's able to stand in the judgment you see but those who are guilty cannot stand and will be embarrassed and ashamed and condemned. And so it is with those who are wicked. Those who have no relationship with God. In the end, they will have no place to stand in the judgment of the Lord, but will flee from that judgment unto their everlasting, eternal ruin in the lake of fire. He says, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. The thought may be here of those who are covertly wicked. That is, those who are self-righteous, who outwardly give some indication that they are righteous. In fact, they even enjoy assembling with the righteous. They like to go to church. They like to feel good about themselves on Sunday, that they've done something for God. And so they go to a church and there they, they sing the hymns and they go through the ritual and they say the words and they think they're absolved of everything. But their heart is not right with God. There is no relationship with God. And in the day of judgment, the Bible says, they will not stand in the assembly of the righteous. There will be found no place for them. They will be missing in that day when God's true children are gathered together. The wicked one is compared to chaff. His life has no purpose in the end, and he is certain to be judged. And notice in verse 6 that the judge is the Lord. The Lord has a different response to different people. You say, that's not right. Yes, it is right. Because, you see, God's response to them depends upon their response to him. It is right. Those who have trusted him, those who have received him, to those he will give blessing. For those who have rejected him and spurned him and neglected him, to those he will give condemnation. God treats 
people differently according to their response to him. He is the judge of the righteous, the psalmist says. He knows their way, or he is knowing their way. It's a continuous thing. God perpetually, continuously cares for those who are righteous. Not those who are self-righteous, but those who have bowed the knee and trusted the Lord, and who therefore, because of their faith, are declared righteous by God. Those who have a relationship with him. The Lord knows their way. The Lord cares for them with favor and grace throughout their lives and into eternity. But on the other hand, the wicked. The way of the wicked, says the psalmist, will perish. Not only will they themselves be judged, but their very way will perish. I remember an occasion when I was driving along a road, trying to get to a certain place, and I thought I would take a shortcut. And so I turned on another road, which seemed very fine, but as I drove further, the highway became a gravel road. And I thought, well, so what? And as I drove further, the gravel road became a dirt road, and I began to be a little concerned. And it wasn't long before that dirt road became a field road, and I was in the middle of the field with nowhere to go. You see, the road had simply run out on me. My way was ruined. There was no place to turn. And so it is for the wicked man. He begins his life in what he thinks is an interstate highway with lots of fun and lots of room. And life is just great for him. But as he goes on further down the road, it begins to narrow a bit. And more so and more so until finally it runs out on him and there's nowhere to go. His way perishes. We might also compare it to the wake of a ship. that gleams in the moonlight as it trails behind the great vessel, only to be wiped away by the waves. And so is the way of the wicked. He thinks he leaves this world with an indelible mark. He's made a difference, but his way perishes. And when he is gone, there is none who misses him or notices that he's absent. So is the way of the wicked. His way perishes. The marvelous thing about God is that he gives us an opportunity to choose whether we want to be the blessed one or the other one. You have the opportunity to decide which you wish to be. We see contrasted in Psalm 1, the blessed one and the wicked one. As you look at the contrast, surely the only decision you can make is to be one of the blessed ones. One of those who bows the knees to God and then receives the gift of salvation and who then lives the life of separation and the life of devotion and who knows the life of satisfaction. But if you've not yet made that choice, understand that you're already moving in the other direction. For there isn't any neutral ground, really. We are either the wicked one or we're the blessed one. And if you have never trusted Jesus Christ 
then as far as God is concerned, today you are the other one who is going away from God and whose way will end in ruin. But God in grace gives you an opportunity yet today to become one of the blessed ones. Will you do that by trusting the Savior this morning? Will you turn from the way that you have been going to God's way? Will you leave the the broad way that leads to destruction and enter the narrow gate that leads to life? If you do, you will be one of the blessed ones. And the Lord will know your way and care for you all the way into eternity and keep you. Make that choice today. Let's pray. Now, Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit will bring to the point of decision any person who's heard this message and who's not trusted the Savior. I pray, Father, that where there is this morning a conviction of sin, that there will be repentance, and that one would turn in faith and will become the blessed one of Psalm 1. In Jesus' name, amen.